pardon my French, but Le Fabolo d'Eston d'Amélie Poulain, or Amélie for short, is a romantic comedy written and directed by Jean-Pierre Genet that centres around the whimsical adventures and romantic aspirations of a timid but gregarious young woman living alone in Paris's 18th arrondissement of Montmartre. With Audrey Tattoo in the title role, released in 2001, Amélie was an incredible and critical commercial success, earning five Oscar nominations, winning four Césars, four European Film Awards and two BAFTAs, and then pulling in over $170 million worldwide, thus making it the highest grossing French language film ever made. It begins with a menagerie of vignettes, a series of deflections, diversions and distractions that ricochet, rebound and reverberate so quickly off one another you hardly notice that a full 22 minutes have to pass before the prologue, a sequence of anecdotes, recollections and observations, stuffed with asides about Amélie's lonely childhood, the facial tics experienced by her late mother, about how she yearned for her father's affection, but how he developed an obsession with garden gnomes, her fears that the flash from her camera might cause traffic accidents, glasses that magically dance on a tablecloth inflated by the wind, how it looks as if long playing records are made like pancakes, trying to care for a goldfish that has suicidal ambitions, an insect that made a cameo appearance in Truffaut's Jules Jim. You see what I'm doing here. All that and a lot more is embroidered before Jeunet finally decides it is high time he got around to addressing the plot's inciting incident. Jeunet has said that he began assembling Amélie's dozens of micro-events as far back as the 1970s. But for all the memories he collected, collaged and crammed onto his canvas, there is another woman's story whose Amelie's most closely resembles. Emma by Jane Austen. Volume 1, Chapter 1. Emma Woodhouse, handsome, clever and rich, with a comfortable home and happy disposition, seemed to unite some of the best blessings of existence, and had lived nearly twenty-one years in the world with very little to distress or vex her. Emma Woodhouse spent most of her time as a matchmaker for her acquaintances, before inadvertently winding up in the arms of a man to whom she had paid scant attention. Which might make you wonder, not what Emma would have done in Amelie's situation, but what would Emma's creator Jane Austen have thought of Jeunet's confection. Austen's novels come so well versed in virtuous manners and vaulted morals, that you might well think that Miss Austen lived a life utterly without blame. Not so. Before she was published, the young Jane Austen experienced three big blushes. Firstly, just before she turned 21, she tumbled for the nephew of a very close friend. The object of her affection, Thomas Langlois Lefoy, sounds so Gallic he might as well belong in Amélie's Paris. But in fact, Thomas was Irish, or to be more precise, a French Huguenot. Noticing Jane's lingering looks, Thomas returned them with interest. But because Thomas came from estates, far beyond the financial register of the Austins, the Lefoy family regarded Jane as an opportunist. So young Thomas was spirited back to Ireland, where he would eventually rise to the position of Lord Chief Justice. Jane's second serious brush of the heart came just before her 27th birthday, 
when she received her one and only marriage proposal. Again, her suitor came with considerable security and comfort. But he was also burdened with the cumbersome name of Harris Bigweather. After initially accepting his betrothal, Jane came to her senses and said no. And thus, generations of readers were spared venerating Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility and Persuasion, authored by Jane Bigwither. As for Jane's third scrape, when she decamped to Bath in 1802, it was rumoured she had befriended a well-known adulterer. As a bonus blush, let me relate the story of Jane's cousin. It has long been assumed that the inspiration for Austen's most celebrated character, Elizabeth Bennet, was her cousin by marriage, Eliza, Madame la Comtesse de Fouilly. For a short while, Eliza came to stop at the Austen household, where, although married, she had the audacity to flirt openly and repeatedly with not just one, but two of Jane's brothers. It was Henry, the older of the two, who responded favourably. But a rather sticky situation was resolved when Eliza's husband, conveniently and very literally, lost his head during the French Revolution. And that, dear listeners, neatly returns us to Paris. Paris is, of course, the birthplace of cinema. And since the Lumiere brothers first rented out a basement of Again, pardon my French, Le Salon Indien de Grand Café on Boulevard de Capucine. The layout of the City of Light has come to resemble less a sundial, fanning its boulevards and avenues in rhythmically measured circular degrees, and more like a movie reel inviting filmmakers from far and wide. Which is how Charlie Chaplin came to introduce us to a woman of Paris. Gene Kelly became an American in Paris. Marlon Brando danced his Last Tango in Paris and Woody Allen celebrated Midnight in Paris. Which is to say that there are many different versions of the city, but really you can divide them into two, the Paris that was created by and thus belongs to Hollywood, and the Paris that is lived in and thus belongs to the Parisians. Many big cities suffer similar discrepancies. Whenever a film is set in London, how many times does the same red bus cross the same bridge down by the same big clock tower. However, American cinema hardly treats its own cities any better, with the same dish being meted out to Manhattan. I believe there should be an embargo on aerial shots of cars crossing the Queensborough Bridge and then pulling out and panning up to see Gotham's skyline. You would think that such cliches are the domain of filmmakers not native to those cities. But for some people, Woody Allen's Manhattan is no more New York than Richard Curtis's Notting Hill reflects the lives of 8 million Londoners, where 50 non-Indigenous communities from 270 countries speak 300 languages. While not as ethnically diverse, the Paris district of Montmartre is far from exclusively French, and even further from exclusively Caucasian. And that is the criticism that was levelled at Jeunet as soon as Amélie was released. Jeunet's version of Paris is unapologetically idealised, Aside from the overabundant flashbacks to earlier times and faraway places, the story unfolds in late 1997. We know this because early on, we see Amélie reacting to the news of Princess Diana's death. But any plausible resemblance to Montmartre of the late 1990s is hard to find. 
Genet's story, obviously a fantasy, slips into a time warp. It's more like the 1930s, a nostalgic, airbrushed Montmartre, devoid of poverty, crime and racial diversity. Everyone is prosperous and everyone is white. And since that charge is irrefutable, I'm going to talk about colour, as in the film's visual design. Whether they were made by French directors or seen through foreign eyes, films set in Paris during the 80s and 90s painted the city in cool blues. Bob Swain's La Balance, Jean-Jacques Benix's Diva, Luc Besson's Subway and Nikita, André Tachin's Rendezvous, Nicole Garcia's Place Vendôme, Guillaume Mouni's L'Apportement. Even Christophe Koslowski slipped into that part of the palette when he made Three Colours Blue. By contrast, however, Jeunet went to enormous lengths to remove that colour from his frame. Even the skies are digitally repainted. Instead, Jeunet opted for saturated reds, yellows and greens, creating a warm tone to support Amélie's dreamy, semi-surreal world. So you have red cherries, raspberries, green cardigans, goldfish and creme brulees. Jeunet then compounds that extreme look by opting for wide-angle lenses that frequently push in very close to his characters. On the Blu-ray commentary, Jeunet says that the film was shot almost entirely on lenses ranging from 14 to 27mm. That means perspectives are always forced, and everything is also in focus. All of which leaves you feeling as though you are flipping through a comic book, or perhaps looking at a live-action homage to master American animator Tex Avery. At one point, Amelie gets so embarrassed, she dissolves into a splash of water, while at another, she is so overcome with passion, the pounding of her heart glows like a red neon sign. Amelie made Audrey Tattoo a star, but she was not Jeunet's original choice for the role. No, he wrote the script specifically for English actress Emily Watson. In fact, the script was initially called Emily. And in that early draft, Emily's father lived in London, with Emily having moved to Paris. Now, since the character had been living in the city for over a decade, it is only to be expected that she would have gone native. Which means Jeunet expected Watson to speak French throughout the film. So Watson began her studies, and was well down the road to becoming fluent, when she suddenly hit a confidence roadblock which caused her to convince herself that she would not be able to deliver the performance to the level needed. She could understand French words, say French words, believe French words, but she said she was not feeling and dreaming in French. So Watson backed out, and that was when the role was offered to Tattoo. But unless you are French, or are watching a dubbed version, you end up watching Amélie with subtitles. My problem with that is you don't watch a film with subtitles, you read a film with subtitles. That means you spend half the time with your eyes racing back and forth across the bottom of the screen. And that means you miss a lot of nuance. Actors' movements, their gestures, and most crucially their eyes. Tattoo has large wondrous eyes that reveal so much. And even with the most subtle movement of her brow, lips or cheek, an entire expression can change. Which means the subtitles can cause you to miss it. 
besides which, subtitles are only a heard approximation of what is being said. It is only an approximation because really, subtitles are only abbreviations. Few people can read as fast as people talk. Which might make you wonder, if there were subtitles accompanying this podcast, perhaps you could figure out what I really think of Amelie.